It's a jackalope carnival. Jack, jack, jackalope. Jackalope carnival. Hunter cleaning cloven cloven. Hello, and welcome to Jackalope Carnival, a sideshow of stories where we look at human beliefs through myth, history, the paranormal, and the downright odd. I'm Becca. And I'm Eric. <laughs> and we'll be your host through this sideshow of stories. Becca. Are you ready to rock? Well, I am, but I don't think we're quite going to that kind of rock. As a matter of fact, we're not. We're going to be telling you today about rocks and stones and that sort of thing. We're going to count down the top five legends of British rock. In no particular order. (laughs) As we've mentioned today, this episode is about legendary British rocks. And some English thinkers and eccentrics who took a special interest in the mystery of rocks. So let's hear it, Jackalope Carnies. Are you ready to rock? I want to rock! Eric wants to rock. I do. And I'll tell you why. Because Eric's been a lover of rocks, crystals, geological wonders for as long as I've known him, which is a long time. And when I mentioned this topic, it was pretty much right in his wheelhouse. Why are you such a rock aficionado, Eric? I've always been the kid who's had pebbles in his pocket, who's found interesting looking stones and thought they needed to come home with me. And then when I was, I want to say in my late teens, I met some folks who had beliefs about rocks and crystals and stones. And to them, they had meaning more than just like, that's an interesting rock or that's an interesting mineral. Right. If I sound, by the way, I I was using my rock radio DJ voice early, but I also have a touch of a cold. So um, I think I sound a little bit more radio friendly than usual. It makes it great when you say rock, just so you know. Rock. That's right. Mm-hmm. But it still sounds like he's announcing for the WWE. (laughs) I only have one announcer voice. (laughs) I use it for everything. (laughs) Wrestling matches, radio countdowns, you name it. So you were telling me a little bit about this dude you found, British guy, who had some interesting ideas on rock. Right, yeah. We can talk about him first, sure, since it's no particular order. No particular order. Mm -hmm. Number five. He is an Englishman by the name of... Northcote Whitridge Thomas. That's amazing. That's a pretty British name, if I do say so. Indubitably. Are we going to do bad English accents today? No, I'm not. No, absolutely. I mean, Eric, you can if you want to, but uh, I will not be doing that. What? Like that? Yeah, it hurts me. (laughs) It hurts my soul. I actually have some some British uh, ancestry on my my mother's side. Anyway, but I don't have a British accent at all. <laughs> as, as you know, as, as everyone knows, when you're born with British ancestry, you automatically, automatically. are born with a British accent. Yes, probably. it's a true story. So Northcote Whitridge Thomas. He's born 1868. He died in 1936. He is appointed as the first government anthropologist by the British Colonial Office. And all this sounds pretty official. His job is to go out and, you know, do anthropology, collect anthropological data, but he's not doing it for the sake of publishing. He's not doing it for any university or anything like that. His job is to collect information for the government so that they can be better imperial rulers, but he's not making any friends. 
In fact, he's publishing treatises about things like witchcraft and magic. <laughs> oh, that's even the better one. The better one he did uh, right after that was Thought Transference, a Critical Historical Review for the Evidence of Telepathy. Nice. Yeah. Nice right up our alley. Oh, and, oh exactly. And, but he's hired by the government. So you can imagine how the British government felt about this guy. And I have a quote actually from one of his contemporaries, which is fantastic. This is a direct quote from one of his contemporaries. Quote, he was a recognized maniac in many ways. He wore sandals. <laughs> and not even with socks. He lived on vegetables and was generally a rum person. Unquote. I, I'm pretty sure I'd like this guy if I met him. He was a hippie before being a hippie was cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, most definitely. And, yeah, he's writing treatises on crystal gazing, which is also called scrying, which you probably know, uh, which is the idea that you can gaze into a crystal or crystal ball and you can see the future or maybe get the answer to some questions you're asking. Um, scrying is actually an ancient practice. And it doesn't come from a, one particular culture because, as Dr. Thomas said you know, over and over again, because I actually read over crystal gazing today. And he gives an exhaustive anthropological account of all the different cultures that he knows of that engage in scrying, both past and present. And he goes to Europe, Asia, Africa, the Americas, Australia, New Zealand. So basically many corners of the world and points out like different cultures have used scrying in different ways. And the thing that made him different from a lot of his contemporaries is he wasn't willing to just take ideas about these topics and just put them away into the corner and call them superstition and be done with it. To Northcote Thomas, it was more important to him to understand why people wanted to do this and what was behind it, right? If there was something that people were doing the world over, why? Right? Why were humans all drawn to gazing into crystals? And so he came up with some ideas that I found actually pretty interesting. He likened gazing into a crystal to hypnosis. That is, he recognized that gazing into a crystal was causing some kind of alteration in your mental state. So I think today we'd probably call it meditation of meditation a kind. Meditation mm -hmm. relaxation, yeah. And he was talking about the fact that people who are scrying aren't they're not hallucinating per se, like in a way that hallucinations mean that you're like mentally ill or you're like something's wrong with you. But rather he starts talking about those hypnagogic images, which is in my belief. Hypnagogic images has to be our band name. I know it's early. <laughs> it's so early. Images, that's beautiful. But uh, so a hypnagogic image actually is something that we talk about in the 21st century. You ever have those really vivid dreams when you first fall asleep? Yeah. Yeah. Hypnagogic image. They're not fully formed dreams yet. They're like the, the previews for your dreams. Well, hypnagogic images, the jam band's just starting out. So they're mm. really not a fully formed jam band yet. Exactly. And he even seems to creep close to the idea, if I'm reading it correctly, and maybe I'm reading, maybe I'm reading into it, but I don't think so. He creeps close to the idea of a collective unconsciousness, which is interesting because this book was written in 1902. That means that he was a contemporary of Carl Jung, mm -hmm. but Carl Jung hadn't yet published the idea of the collective unconscious in 1902 yet. Mm. So if he's creeping towards that idea, it's interesting that he would have a similar idea. I wonder where Unless they he tried it or both men got it from some common pool of human knowledge. Such as a collective unconscious. 
so anyway, this recognized maniac in his sandals, living on vegetables and drinking rum, <laughs> didn't make a lot of friends back home um, in in London, where they were looking for information about how to better imperialize. I, I'm trying not to get too political here, but it's well, it's they were looking into it's imperialism. I mean, come on, like I how to use the resources if you want to say it. They uh-huh. want to understand the resources in which they had recently colonized. <laughs> I'm letting you carry this water, right? Yeah. So I'm not getting involved, but yes, absolutely. They they want they want to do that imperial stuff, and he's not. He doesn't seem particularly interested in tracking down informations for the imperial rulers to help them rule better. He seems much more interested in talking about thought transference and crystal gazing and Rocks. wearing sandals. And He just know, wants to rock. He just wants to rock. He wants to rock out. That being said, his writing is of a man of his time. And there are some just minorly cringy. I mean, nothing overtly like, you know, makes you want to slam the book shut. But kind of early 20th century way of talking about human beings that isn't the best. But all in all, he really doesn't seem to be too signed on, at least in the one work of his that I read, to some kind of political agenda. He really does seem much more interested in knowing what happens when you gaze into the pretty rocks. Well, he's a hippie. He is. Although, that being said, the last thing I'll say about him is, if you go and find the picture of him that's up on the internet, it's fantastic because he looks exactly like you would imagine a British man who's an anthropologist in Africa in the early 20th century looking, including the pith helmet. He's wearing an actual pith helmet. Of course he is. And he yeah. probably like had his tea out there in China that had to be served correctly at the time of day. It had to be correct. Most likely while gazing into crystals and trying yeah, to I was I was going to say that I'm a little disappointed that we don't have – we usually talk about what a group of a animal is, and we don't have that. We do have rocks put into groups, however, which I remember from like third grade, which was igneous, sedimentary, and metamorphic. So while we don't have a group of a collective group of rocks is called rocks do get grouped. So there you are. Well, what do you call what do you call a group of anthropologists? Unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> wow. I say that someone with a a higher degree in religious studies. So, <laughs> um, and who's actually looking into anthropology. Okay. So a barista you know, of anthropologists, a barista of anthropologists. <laughs> Sorry. So I was talking about third grade. I began my fascination with rocks and, you know, I was a kid living in Idaho around then. And we had the mountain, a rock formation that we looked at out my, front door, which is called this, the mountains are called the Grand Tetons, which means exactly what you think it does. <laughs> which always makes me chuckle. But they're, it's a really, I love that part of the country, actually. Just the Grand for the, Tetons are beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's all I need to say. Yep. The mountain range was called by the Shoshone, um, according to Wyoming Magazine, at least, Tiwanot, which meant many pinnacles. And then I imagine some French explorer who's like maybe alone for a really long time. Oh, I can only imagine how the story goes, right? Drinking, maybe he was like poking his friends, like Le Grand Titon, um, which means the great teats. I'm just going to say it. Just say it. Um, (laughs) So they have been known since as the Grand Tetons. But now, and that's an official name, part of U.S. geography. I don't think that's exactly what captured my attention. It was watching television, of course, as a third grader. (laughs) And there was a show. I can't remember exactly what 
program it was. But it talked about rock walls in a pub in Ireland, someplace, that the stone of the walls had actually recorded the voices of past patrons. And when people worked there at night, they could hear the voices. Oh, my gosh. I totally remember this. This is the strangest thing. Old. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't. I've tried looking it up. I can't find it. So if any of our listeners know exactly what I'm talking about or want to correct my memory, uh, go ahead and contact us on Instagram at Jackalope Carnival, or you can eventually go to www.jackalopecarnival.com, which is our website. It's getting worked on right now. So that's good to know. It's not surprising that we watched literally the same TV shows growing yeah, up. No, it's not. It's not. So what this idea of the recordings on the pub walls may fall under is something particularly intriguing and that something is called stone tape theory, which is a theory that the earth and specifically stones can store the energy of particularly emotive events hmm. and that have happened there over time. So, you know, we talked a little bit about this with the time slips, how Gettysburg has this energy about it. Someone who believed in the t- stone tape theory would say it's because the ground has captured the emotions. Stone tape theory is an early 90s rave band. Well, it was also the name, and this is why they think that, that it's called this. It was the name of a show on the BBC in 1972. And so this is where this name comes from for this particular idea. The Chambers Dictionary of the Unexplained defines this as a theory that suggests the recurrent hauntings are a form of recording on the material environment analogous to video or audio tapes. So, you know, when you go somewhere and you get those vibes. The stone tape theory, it continues, or rather hypothesis, explains recurrent hauntings as recordings of scenes or events that are imprinted in the fabric of buildings and rocks, which are then played at intervals in the form of ghostly manifestations. If you accept this suggestion, ghostly manifestations have no consciousness and cannot interact with human observers. They're more like video clips. Which, I gotta say, if I saw a ghostly manifestation, not saying if I have or have not, that would comfort me quite a bit. (laughs) It's just a stone tape. It's a hologram, a stone Mm -hmm. hologram. Yeah, the idea comes from the stone tape broadcast that was on the BBC in 72. And, you know, it basically had that same idea. So in that way, it's a very English theory. And again, it has also been used to explain time slips, that that is why you have time slips, that you're suddenly maybe surrounded by a complete hologram, rather than you put on the helmet, the helmet is surrounding you. What do you think about that? I think you don't like the idea of time slips. I think you're trying to find all kinds of reasons. Yes, why I went and I purposely looked up the stone theories to explain. This, is, this has all been a large conspiracy. This is how it happened. Why don't you like time slips? I'm simply giving you another perspective. It has nothing to do with me liking or not liking time slips. This is science. Or it science. by scientists. So the theory the actually, yeah, the theory isn't just espoused by mediums and mystics, actual scientists, English scientists, and really respected thinkers of their time in the 19th century. Apparently, this includes the mathematician and pioneer in computing, Charles Babbage. And he had an invention called the Difference Engine in the 1800s. Also a good band name. 
though the difference in Jeanette is with Ada Lovelace. It's considered the first mechanical computer. The thing is, is Babbage, he's born in the late 18th century. And as a man of the 19th century, he's no stranger to spiritualism and the interest in sort of the paranormal that was going on during that time. So it's not surprised that someone who was called an eccentric mathematician was influenced by this, you know, zeitgeist of the era. But here's my but. To be fair, I can't exactly find the source that's used to claim this, but all sorts of places claim that Charles Babbage was involved. However, <laughs> I did find sources where he tried to summon the devil, <laughs> which um, started swing at- for the fences, you know, right. like don't start <laughs> off small. Like, yeah. You- yeah, which started with me finding a Gizmodo article and then his autobiography, Passages from the Life of a Philosopher, which he explains this. So I wouldn't put it past him. Like, this is, you know, he's like, I tried to summon the devil because I didn't really believe in the devil. But so I don't put it past him at all. Do you think him and Northcote Whitridge Thomas were hanging out? Uh, drinking, sipping really rum know. together? I mean, it's possible. I think he was growing much earlier. I'm not sure when he died, but he died in the 1800s. He was born in the late 1700s. So uh, he he was good friends with Ada Lovelace, though, Mm, who, of course, was the sort of mother of computing. Pretty cool. And there's theories that if he would have listened to her, then we would have had computers a lot sooner, but he didn't. There you go. Yeah, that's my number four. In no particular order. Mm -hmm. So here's my number three. So Stonehenge, probably the most famous rocks in all of Britain, perhaps, arguably. What are they? They are megaliths. 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 Yeah, that's... That coming, did y'all? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what a megalith is, right? Megalith. Uh, I do, yes. Yeah, it's a big rock. That's what it means. And they were built during the Neolithic, that is. There's a lot of lith here. New rock. Yeah, lithic, uh-huh. They were a Neolithic building. Is that the right word? I don't know. Structure? Structure. Structure. They're giant cut stones, what they call blue stone. Each stone is, weighs about five imperial tons or 4.5 metric tons, if you like. They're on Salisbury Plain, which is just east of Wales. They're in the southern part of the island of Great Britain in England. And there's a large highway that crosses right next to it. Did you? You didn't go when you lived over in Great Britain? You didn't? I, I lived in the north, so no. Oh, I would I have. I did go to London. I did go to the south, but. Gotcha. They are old. They're real old. They're, like I said, they're Neolithic. They're <laughs> they're like 5,000 years old, old. So they predate the Roman Empire by millennia. They were cut from a quarry about 140 miles away. So, yeah, something made folks 5,000 years ago cut five ton blocks of stone and drag them for over a hundred miles. And that leads you to a lot of questions. Well, got- and it, it really, they are one of those places where it's like every single theory of somewhere. Mm-hmm. It was one of the origin places for ley lines. You know, that's where yeah, the ley line I re- thing. I recall this. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, if we're talking about stone tape theory, that's a lot of tape. <laughs> right. Indeed. My favorite story about Stonehenge, though, comes not from its origin. And we really don't know – when I say we, I mean humans – don't really know you know, a lot more about it because of how yeah, long ago they were construction. Everybody else does. <laughs> right. Or aliens. One of the two. But my favorite story comes from the 12th century 
which is much more recent, 12th century common era, that is. That is a few centuries ago. A few centuries ago if you're a history teacher or a long time ago for everybody else. But they were attributed to Merlin. And this is how the story goes. Apparently, once upon a time, the blue stones that made up Stonehenge were not in England. They weren't even in Europe. They were in Africa. And they were constructed in Africa as a place of magical healing, that people would go there and the stones with their magical properties would heal people. But then a group of giants moved them to Ireland because that's a thing. You know, I have a rock also that was supposed to have been in Ireland and then went back to England. Was it moved by giants? Pharaoh's daughter? I don't. I think she was regular sized, but here's where the story gets interesting. Because there's another twist. Ready? So then there were a group of Saxon invaders. We're getting into the the King Arthurish kind of uh, era of things, and so the Saxons are invading, and the Britons, you know, the Celtic Britons are defending, and there's a bloody battle, and the wizard Merlin, yes, that wizard Merlin, then gets the giants to move Stonehenge from Ireland over to where its current location is as a memorial to the slain of this battle. Okay, yeah, because I was just thinking, why? Oh, there are all kinds of questions that when I was reading this, all kinds of questions popped up. Like, first of all, giants? That came from nowhere. Oh, there's just a group of giants. Like, how big? Were giants common back then? Did they regularly just pick up and move things from continent to continent? Was that a thing giants do? Giants were in a lot of mythologies, for sure. In wealth mythology, they have like Gog Magog, I believe, who is a giant. So, yeah, giants are a thing. Well, and does does Merlin have them on speed dial? Like, you can just call him up and be like, hey, I need like a giant megalith moved. Every wizard has giants on speed dial. Oh, my gosh. And then finally, you're disassembling this magic hospital that can heal you to move it to a graveyard. Isn't that kind of closing the barn door after the horse has already escaped? Well, did you ever consider, I mean, zombies? Maybe Merlin was trying to make Arthurian zombies. You don't know. Arthurian zombies answers nothing and just poses more questions. That is a really badass band name. (laughs) It is. But it's also the opposite of Occam's razor. It's like Occam's blunt stone. You have just multiplied the the, the complexity of our problem. Which is also what Stonehenge is, to be fair. (laughs) (laughs) Touché. (laughs) so what's your next rock story number two (laughs) my next rock story um it's an enigmatic british rock again like Um, brian eno it's called the stone of schoon um and we would or the stone of destiny now the stone of schoon we would see in for america we would say it looks like scone or scone as i often heard it when i lived in scotland this stone, it, the providence of it is not exactly 100%, but it holds a famous legend and a very important place in British history. I first heard about this rock when I was in Edinburgh, Scotland, and a friend of both Eric and I, Candy, just in case you're wondering, Eric, um, was Yes, I figured that out. <laughs> and she told me that it had been used to crown Scottish kings for centuries, specifically since around 496 AD when Fergus the Great was crowned King of the Scots and he sat on the stone while he was crowned. It was stolen in 1296 by Edward I after a battle, so after an English invasion. And then it was placed 
in a small chair where the English monarchs would be crowned for around 700 years. And this is known as the coronation chair. She's telling me this and she's really excited and telling me it's such a big deal. It has officially made it back to Scotland and it was in Edinburgh where we were living. And, you know, friends, I have to tell you, my first reaction to this was it's a rock. (laughs) Because to be fair, it is. It's a large rock. It's shaped like a giant cardboard box. It's a slab of red sandstone with some marks and scratches. It doesn't look like much. I believe a sandstone is a is a sedimentary rock, if I remember correctly. <laughs> For all of you who are remembering igneous, sedimentary, and metamorph. Um, but as we've mentioned, Jackalope Carnival is a show that looks at its sideshow of stories through the lens of belief. And when you view the stone of destiny through that lens, it's just so much more than sandstone. There are a few legends about the stone, and honestly, it gets a little confusing because people have said all sorts of different things. And there's also a stone of destiny in Ireland. And sometimes historians, especially medieval historians, have had the same thing to say about both of them. So I was like, am I looking at the Irish stone or the Scottish stone? But one that I found, the Canadians. <laughs> the Canadians. Is there a Canadian stone of destiny, eh? <laughs> no, but on the United Church of God Canada website, they tell us a little story about it. And that they found a story in the text of a Victorian scholar named William Skeen, who quotes, this is quite the thing, I'm quoting a website who quotes a Victorian scholar who then quotes uh, Hector Bose in... <laughs> 1537. I totally lost track of that lineage, but please go forward. That's what I'm saying. And, you know, honestly, check your sources, folks. I always (laughs) like to. So I'm being fair and tell you there's quite the chain for me to get this information. But from what I understand, this man was a historian in the 16th century, 15th and 16th century. And while he did write this particular story. So he says that the stone, it, it, gets, it basically places our stone in the biblical world at the time of Moses. So if you ever wonder how something from the time of Moses ends up curled into the British coronation, this is how. He talks about a man named Gaphilus, a Greek, and his wife, Skoda, who was daughter of Pharaoh. Now, you might be asking, which Pharaoh? They don't really tell us. I'm not sure. Um <laughs> But he was a pharaoh at the time of Moses. And I believe we don't really know 100% who was pharaoh during that whole Moses in the Reed story, do we? No, there's a um, theory that it's Ramses II, but we really don't know. There's theories. We don't know. So, I mean, hey, we don't know who pharaoh's daughter is exactly either, so it's fair. Now, Gathalus and Skoda managed to find their way eventually to Spain. Like, What? (laughs) (laughs) And they found the stone there, and some legends have them taking it to Ireland, and so maybe this is where we get to, but then there's stories that it moved from Ireland to Scotland, and then the Scots are descendants of Skoda. It gets a little twisty-turny and confusing. Maybe the stone is cloven and divided between the two. Well, funny you say that, because it does get divided eventually. The importance, and and re-re-hooked, I don't know what you would say, re-cloven... (laughs) Um, So the importance of this stone, though, is that this stone was the stone used by Jacob as a pillow. Now, I'm talking about the biblical Jacob who wrestles angels, not some Scottish butcher's son or maybe your (laughs) least favorite cousin. 
which is oddly specific. But yeah, I'm not okay. I go. don't have a cousin, Jacob. Oh, okay, good. While doing some research, I found an article which was really interesting. Well, to that's me. and Becca, sorry, that's that's a pretty important story. If I can, if I can jump in for Absolutely. a second. Absolutely. Why would it need to be there, Eric? Do you think that they had to have this well, stone because the, the stone spot. becomes an, becomes an altar, and that altar ends up being the spot of the holiest of holies for the temple? Absolutely. And so this also sort of ties in that this is what God wills, right? If they're being able to be coronated on oh, the stone. Oh, there's that British thing again. Yes. Yes. So, well, this is Scots at this time. So, oh, okay. Sorry. Um, so while I was doing some research, I found an article from May 1st, 1937 um, from the Canadians again. And <laughs> this Canadian magazine is called McLean's. And the article talks about the upcoming coronation of who is now the late Queen Elizabeth. And it reiterates the Skoda story, but it also tells us one reason why it was so important that Edward I stole the stone and why the Scots wanted it back. And it states, and this would be a good time for me to use a bad British accent if I was going to, but I'm not going to. And I absolutely adore Scotland, so I will definitely not be doing a bad Scots accent. (laughs) All right. I adore Canada, and that's not going to stop me from using my Canadian accent in a second. All right. So, (laughs) yeah, good Um, And I quote, the Scots made repeated but vain attempts to recover the stone, for tradition has it that this was the stone upon which Jacob rested his head at Bethel, and which was carried afterward by his sons into Egypt, from whence Pharaoh's daughter Skoda brought it to Albion, while Moses foretold that victory would always follow the stone. Scottish people have a tradition where wherever the stone rests, there will reign one of the royal line of Scotland. And then they're quoting... A poem that says, unless the fates are faithless found and prophet's voice be vain, wherever is placed this stone in there, the Scottish race shall reign. So the stone does more than connects the line of monarchy to the Bible, shows God's will. It states that whoever is crowned upon it will reign over Scotland. Hmm. Uh, my mind has been reeling the whole time thinking that there could be a Canadian stone of destiny and what that would mean look like. And that makes me think there's, if you asked, some guy would be like, oh yeah, yeah, it's behind the Tim Hortons. I'll I'll drive you over there in a second, okay? <laughs> Maybe it's actually a, a donut. So this stone does more than simply connect the line of the monarchy to the Bible and it shows God's will with who will reign. It states that whoever is crowned upon it is who is going to reign over Scotland specifically. And in 2014, there was a referendum for Scottish independence, and it didn't pass. But for some, the sentiment has been there since mid-20th century. And especially after Brexit, it was sparked anew. There's long been a Scottish independence movement, and you can see it touched on in that article, where they say the Scots made vain but repeated attempts to recover the stone. And it turns out they weren't through and the attempts wouldn't be in vain much longer because in 1950, seeking to right the wrongs of the past and to make some publicity, a group of students from Glasgow decided to bring the stone back to its rightful place, Scotland. And they devised a plan to do just that, to recover the stone of Schoon. And they planned it. And they looked a bunch of books up in the library, which would end up being their undoing because they checked them out and (laughs) their names were on those books. And eventually they found a little funding from a Scottish nationalist politician, just a little bit. 
And they made their way to Westminster Abbey, where the stone was being kept and had been for about 700 years. On Christmas Day in 1950, they decided that this was the day for the heist. And so they had a few snafus. They did cleave the stone in half because they dropped it at first. Um, Don't worry, they get someone to put it back together. According to Wikipedia, they also put it together with a rod and a piece of paper inside. So that's what the message that this Glaswegian... um, stonemason put in there can we just say cleave because cleave can be means to stick together or to fall apart so we could okay, say cool. cleave either way thank you thank you for yeah. the correction they I were the stone was cloven and they clove it back together right they clove it cleaved it cleaved it just making up things now where was I? So, <laughs> so, so anyway, they're, they're trying to get this rock out of there. Scared the stone. And um, they evaded the police for a while. And the police went on a nationwide search. And when I say nationwide, Scotland. <laughs> they were definitely looking in Scotland. Because um, who else would have stole it? Right. And so they were looking for the culprits. Eventually, after several months in April of 1951, the students... Um, with the police kind of on their trail, they gave the stone to the church of Scotland at Arbroath Abbey. And from there it was returned to Westminster. The students, Kay Matheson, Gavin Vernon, Alan Stewart, and Ian Hamilton, who recently passed away. Ian Hamilton was the last survivor and he died uh, while I was researching this actually. Hmm. October of 22. And so the stone is in Scotland today where it's been since 1996 when England returned it, but it's going to be making a trip back to England pretty soon for the coronation of King Charles. So is it a lump of sandstone or does that belief in it make it so much more? And I think it's a symbol. Yeah. Pretty obviously. All right. That was number two. Right. So the last thing is number one, the rock of Gibraltar. This is the kind of rock that isn't small and could fit into a pocket or even, you know, that one could put under a throne, say. This rock is enormous. It's a cliff. It's a giant rocky cliff. And it's just south of Spain. But the territory, even though it is connected to Spain, the territory is British. And it has been British territory since the 18th century. And the legend goes that as long as a species of macaque, which are called Barbary apes, because people weren't very good with animal taxonomy, you know, when the animals are named, they're monkeys. But there's a species of monkey that lives on this rock. And the legend goes, as long as the monkey lives on the rock, Great Britain will be able to keep possession of and rule over Gibraltar. Yeah, that's a weird one. Rule Britannia and its monkeys. Rule Britannia and her monkeys, indeed. And her monkey citizens? Like, I mean, it seems like the monkeys have a pretty important part here. Do they at least get citizenship? They they have handlers. Like, they have they have a whole group of people whose job it is to take care of the monkeys. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. There's between 200 and 300 of them right now in the Rock of Gibraltar, and they're cared for. Um, they're the only native monkeys to the entire continent of Europe. Oh and there's some there's some discrepancy about how they got there because while monkeys, of course, can be found across the Strait of Gibraltar in Africa, there are no other monkeys found anywhere else in Europe. So the question is, is how did these monkeys get there? And there's a couple of theories. One is that Berber traders took them at some point. 
My favorite one, though, is that Gibraltar apparently is riddled with underground caves and tunnels. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm, that's one of our things that we like to talk about. And some people think that maybe the macaques like wandered in from the underground tunnels, which I, I want that to be true. I like it. Mm-hmm. Do you know, just FYI, a group of monkeys is called a troop. You know what you don't want to mess with? A troop of monkeys. There's some evidence out there, a barrel of monkeys, but I don't believe that. <laughs> I yeah, is, as in more fun then. I worked with monkeys in my zookeeping career. Um, I have worked alongside and with them. I don't care for monkeys to work with. I think they're great to look at, like out in the wild. I've seen monkeys in the wild in Asia. I don't want to get too close to them. One of my coworkers in one of the facilities I worked in got his ear bitten off by a monkey. I don't want any part of that. Yeah. So if you see a monkey in the wild, keep your distance. They, they're they cute looking, but they can mean business. Well, these monkeys apparently have the run of the rock. And I was actually reading the official British website for Gibraltar, where they give you pointers about how to interact with monkeys. Apparently, the monkeys have gotten so used to people that they associate plastic bags with food. So they literally warn you, do not bring plastic bags out of the, the little sky trolley. Like they have like a cable car and to get up to the rock, people take the cable car, but don't take the plastic bag with you. Because if you do, the monkeys will jack your plastic bag, like looking for food. Also monkeys of Gibraltar is a really good band name. It is. But these monkeys will take your bag. And, and the, the official advice is if the monkey takes your bag, do not try to reclaim the bag from the oh, monkey. I would never. I'd just the monkey like, oh, will bite you. Now. <laughs> yeah. Apparently though, if there's no food in it, They'll just drop it and you can get it back. But as long as they don't attack you because you haven't brought tribute. <laughs> so here's the thing. So because of that legend about, you know, Great Britain and the British Empire and the monkeys and whatnot, in the 1940s during World War II, the monkey population was actually dwindling. I don't know. I mean, one can only imagine that that wasn't one of the priorities of the British Empire at the time was taking care of their monkeys. Um, officially, Spain was neutral during the war, but Great Britain was taking care of business elsewhere. But the troop of monkeys was getting smaller and smaller, and Winston Churchill actually sent an expedition to capture more monkeys and bring them to Gibraltar to set them loose to make sure that the monkey population stayed healthy. Of course he did. This Now, you know how I had questions about Merlin's giants and all that? Yeah. I have questions about Churchill's <laughs> monkey gatherers. Like, did he get a group of British commandos? In I mean, like, you know he did. That's not even like, ha You know he did. And, they're like, and like their mission was, we had this secret mission. And they're like, whatever for the empire. And they're like, you're going to go catch wild monkeys. Or the empire. Right. Yeah. And the people are like, what? I don't think that I really understood how many things had to be done to keep Britain going. Monkeys, um, stones have to be in certain place. Like I, I really, I mean, it's like Narnia or something. Running an empire is, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts here. I didn't understand. Indeed. No, I didn't. So I that's, these are our top five um, British rocks. Yeah, home. we hope you liked it and now have a more appreciation of how many rocks are involved in keeping an empire going. Take care, folks. Alright, what well does
I think that they're not exactly what made me. Gunter cleaning Cloven Cloven. Number. Are we counting down or up? I don't know. We, his, Number three. 